Welcome everybody, this is Peter Ravella and Tyler Buckingham and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is episode four and we have got a great show today. We do, we are thrilled to have on the podcast today from Boston, Massachusetts, Jenna Valente. Jenna, welcome to the show. Thanks guys, thanks for having me. And Jenna, we are thrilled to have you on, and you're the first uh, ASPN podcast host that we are introducing to our audience. Uh, we are looking forward to your show, The Sea Change Podcast, and are really excited about the topics you're going to cover on that show. Yeah, I'm honored to be here. Thanks for having me on, and I'm really excited about this project, um, this podcast is definitely going to be a, a passion project of mine, and I'm uh, really excited to get out there and share my story and all of these other different ocean advocates' stories from all over the country. Fantastic. And before we dive into that topic and get to know you a little bit better and introduce you to the ASPN audience, uh, we need to thank our sponsors. And uh, our, we want to thank our founding sponsor, the American Shore and Beach Preservation Association, the premier shoreline and beach organization in the United States. Uh, ASBPA is a fantastic organization with chapters all over the country. Uh, Tyler will be going to the National ASBPA Conference in Galveston on October 30th and, and producing and uh, distributing three podcasts while we're there. This uh, conference is probably, it's certainly one of the most important national coastal events of the year. Um, it's, it's an incredible opportunity to meet all of our colleagues from around the country, including Hawaii. Uh, Dolan, if you're listening, shout out to you, Dolan Eversall out there. Um, up and down the coast. It's actually where I met, we both met Jenna a year ago uh, at the conference in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, it's just a, a great thing. Uh, early registration, September 29th, coming up. Yep, and so folks out there... The ASBPA conference, register online at asbpa.org. The early registration deadline, as Tyler said, September 29th. You'll save $50 on the registration fee. The conference is in Galveston, Texas at the Galveston Island Convention Center, a fabulous facility right on the seawall. And uh, going to be a great conference, and we hope to see everybody there. You'll have to drop by the Coastal News today in ASPN booth, and we'll look We would to love you. to see you there. We will be there. Uh, we are really looking forward to talking to everybody, all the listeners, all of our readers, about uh, what Coastal News today can, can bring for you, great show ideas. We're already getting great feedback, uh, and it's just we're so excited to meet everybody at the conference. Yep. Peter, let's talk quickly about Doom Doctors. Yeah, I'm really happy to have Doom Doctors as a sponsor on the ASPN uh, programs. Uh, Doom Doctors is a great company, Pensacola, Florida, uh, founded in 2000 by then Frederic Perret, who is now Frederic uh, Barasset. And Frederic is the owner of this woman-owned business. It is a coastal restoration company. Uh, she does a fantastic job. They're experts in coastal res restoration. They specialize in consulting and constructing and maintaining native dune systems. Basically, restoring native dune habitat is their specialty. Uh, they've delivered projects for, for government, commercial, and residential projects all along the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, they're located in the panhandle of Florida, but they work all over the state, and they're They've worked. We've worked and done great projects. As we've far seen. Down. We've seen their work. It's fantastic. They did. We did a massive dune restoration project in South Padre together uh, back in the day uh, when we were in the coastal consulting business, Tyler. But uh, we want to thank for, uh, Dune Doctors for being a sponsor of, of of the American Shoreline Podcast and for our network shows. And if you if you've got an interest or a need in dune restoration and and Coastal Protection, give our friends a call at Dune Doctors. Uh, you can find them on the website, doondoctors.com. So, Jenna, now that we've gotten the business out of the way, we really want to turn our attention to what I think is, I'm just thrilled to have you as a host on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Uh, and before we dive into your show, can you tell us and tell our audience a little bit about 
uh, yourself. Where did you grow up and were you a coastal kid? Sure. Yeah. So I was um, a many different coastal kid growing up um, because my father was actually in the Coast Guard. He was in the Coast Guard. He served for 30 years. Um, and that allowed me and my family to explore some of the most beautiful places around the country. Um, and I also had the fortune of always living near a large body of water or the coast in the ocean. Um, so I was actually born in Hawaii. Um, from there we moved to Maine and then we moved back to Hawaii and then we moved to Washington state and then we moved back to Maine. So Wow. Um, we, yeah, so I, I definitely relate to those people that are, you know, from everywhere. I feel like my roots are spread really far and wide. Um, but it moving that much as a kid, which is interesting for me to say now, because when I was living it, it was a bit challenging, you know, just being young and figuring out who you are can be challenging, um, mm. in its own right, even if you aren't bopping all over the country um but now can i ask a question about that yeah i'm just you know i have to say i i grew up uh pretty static relatively in southern california my my local beach town was ventura california and uh i to this day i think that in my like in my mind's eye my ideal beach is like that southern california beach between Maine and Hawaii, do you have that spiritual beach in your heart? Or are you kind of, has, did that experience just broaden your coastal love? I think over time, you develop deeper, um, you know, a deeper appreciation for specific locations and develop a sense of place and connect to certain places mm-hmm. more than others. Um, so I think in my mind's eye, when I think about my beach or the ocean, um, I'm brought back to just different parts of my life uh-huh. and places that were really formative to me. So Hawaii is very special. And some of the first memories that I have, um, in my life, but if I were to think about where my beach and where my coast is, I definitely am brought to the coast of Maine. Um, I spent most of my summers going up to our family's summer homes. We have a summer home that's about 40 minutes away from Acadia National Park, um, right along the down east coast of Maine. And I really cherish the memories that I have there, not only because it's one of the most beautiful places in the world, in my opinion, um, but also because that is where I've you know, been able to really get to know a lot of my family members and uh, you know, develop some lifelong friendships with people who are now pretty much family, even though they're not blood. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I, I can tell you I relate very well to the idea of growing up in a military family. My dad was a 30-year Air Force pilot, and we moved all of the time. And uh, it's always tough when people say, where are you from? And I say, when? Because there, yeah. isn't, there isn't one answer to that question. Um, yeah, I, I feel like I normally say, do you want the, the long version or the short version? <laughs> the short version is Maine because that's where – my roots are deepest, but if they want the full thing, I'll happily tell them, you know, all of the different places I've had the privilege of living. I have, um, I got to tell you that, that I think the spectrum of places that you've lived on the American shoreline, Hawaii can't be more different from Maine. And then Washington state, I assume you were in the Puget sound area. So Uh, we actually, my dad was stationed on the snake river. Um, in Columbia River and so we were in Vancouver Washington which is Mm -hmm. just across the river from Portland Oregon right and yeah that's where I'm I'm very familiar with that territory having gone to uh, well I went to law school at Lewis and Clark Law School in Portland and love the Pacific Northwest Coast Um, this range of physical spaces that you've been to lived in I think is really a great uh, foundation for your show because talking about coastal advocates around the United States, uh, 
they're different absolutely from place they, to place. they're different from place to place and i think at you know such a young age um i was able to to realize how different and dynamic each of those coastlines are then they're so important and special in their own ways and require different types of care and have their own challenges that they're facing um, and the cultures around the coasts are so different in each of the, the many regions of our country. So it's important to keep that in mind when you're advocating for those regions. Well, tell us, you know, the advocacy is the topic of uh, the Sea Change podcast. And what inspired you to work on coastal issues? Yeah, so um, I'm really driven to do this kind of work by a couple of things. So first, um, I am a very firm believer in that conservation and caring for the planet is the most important thing that we can be doing as a species. Um, and this really isn't just a conservation issue. I view it as a human survival issue. Um, you know, we need to figure out how to feed um, and give access to clean water, clean air, and all the basic necessities for life um, to 10 billion people by the year 2050. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So that is a complex challenge, whether you believe in climate change or not, or whatever political leaning you might have, or you know what you care about as a human, those are very real issues that we are all going to be facing. Um, and it is important to be taking action on those today, um, yeah, in preparation practical. for a, you know, a population boom for humans. Right. Um, you know, I feel like if we don't have a planet that can support human life, then we're clearly in serious trouble. Um, and then second, I really want to leave this planet in a better place than I found it. Um, I want future generations to be able to have those really amazing, awe-inspiring moments with interacting with the outdoors and nature um, that I had that I feel like are so formative to who I am and my reason for um, getting into this line of work and caring about it is that I want to, um, you know, give something right. and a pass legacy it. It to... Yeah, absolutely. I want other people to be able to enjoy it and live a healthy life. You know, I think I think it's such a an important thing that you're talking about about the the necessity of conservation and care in the shoreline environment because one of the things that ASPN and Coastal News today were trying to uh, bring across to people is how much we ask the shoreline to do. Uh, when you think of both the biological productivity for the sake of nature itself, but also for the economics of, of what biological productivity and healthy ecosystems means, healthy bays and estuaries, uh, stable shorelines, that kind of thing, plus all of the economic activity on the coast. Uh, you know, this idea of maintaining the coast and caring for the coast is a critical component of the coastal conversation all over the United States. Absolutely. And I know that most of my day is focused on the coast, the conservation aspect of the coast, but those things are economic powerhouses. Um, for us, they're matters of national security. They're home to a large, large number of um, the American people. And then even if people don't live there, they're one of the most popular places to vacation. So um, I mean, our actions speak louder than words in terms of how we care about our coast, and it's apparent by how much we, we use them and um, how much we expect from them on a production level. For sure. So tell us, I think that, that leads me to the question of really uh, helping our listeners understand the work that you do. And, I and you work for the American Literal Society and also play a big role in the Healthy Oceans Coalition. Uh, tell us a little bit about those. Yeah, so the American Literal Society is a nonprofit that was founded back in the 1960s um, on Sandy Hook, New Jersey. 
Um, and a lot of work that they do is based on on the ground conservation and restoration initiatives um, and environmental education initiatives. They're a really amazing and inspiring group that has done a lot of fantastic work over the years um, and is made up of a lot of really driven, bright people. Um, and within the American Littoral Society, um, I serve as the ocean policy manager, um, but also the Healthy Oceans Coalition coordinator. Um, and I can give you a little bit of background about yeah. what the Healthy Oceans Coalition is, if that's helpful. Yeah, I think, yeah, I'd like to know more about the Healthy Oceans Coalition. It sounds like an organization that brings together a lot of groups to work on uh, issues on the American shoreline. Yeah, so the Healthy Oceans Coalition is this national network of all different kinds of ocean users from um, your concerned citizen level to all the way up to those really large conservation uh, groups and nonprofits and uh, environmental non-government organizations. So groups that you likely, you know, the listeners likely have heard of like, um, you know, Oceana, Sierra Club, all the way up to, you know, that level, um, down to people who just love the ocean and are wanting to be engaged in the policy aspect of it. So um, what we do is we all work together to support policy that is good for our ocean, coasts, and Great Lakes. Um, so we serve as a connector of our members to the people that are making the policies because we realized that there was a little bit of a gap there that needed to be filled. It's not always the easiest thing to do in plugging into what's happening at a federal level, um, plugging into what Congress is doing and our other federal agencies and policymakers when those policies that those um, leaders are making are really affecting you on the ground right. so yeah so we do a lot of work with our members to help them become the coastal advocacy rock stars that they want to be um a lot of that is in helping them amplify and develop their messaging around their specific advocacy goals um, and then helping um push forward those goals so we've been doing a lot of work and i can touch on this um in a bit because I think we're planning on talking about this, yeah. but um, a lot of the things that our members care about at the moment and have been advocating for um, are defending our coasts against offshore oil and gas expansion, um, protecting our monuments and sanctuaries, um, uh, federal, some other things are just federal fisheries, the national ocean policy, repeal and replace the budget, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. We have such a diverse group of people, but they're all out there doing really incredible work. And we see ourselves as the catalyst um, between them and the decision makers. So yeah. however we can be helpful to them, either training or helping with messaging or helping them get to, um, you know, conferences or go to DC Whatever it may be, we're here to help them. I hear you. And that sounds like, you know, what it sounds like to me is that's the readership and the listenership for Coastal News Today. We're a big part of it and the American Shoreline Podcast Network. We want to, we believe that these policy discussions that underlie how we relate to the American Shoreline is a, is a key topic across the spectrum of, of interest that we're going to have on the, on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Um, just a quick note to the listeners, as you guys recall, we introduced a couple of federal coastal policy podcasts that will be on the network. Um, Howard Marlowe's show, The Water Log Podcast, uh, really looking forward to Howard's insights into the DC universe. Uh, he is a longtime DC pro. And then Derek Brockbank, the executive director of ASBPA, um, has a show called The Capitol Beach. So. I, I, we hope down the line that on the network um, we start to have guest hosts on these shows and perhaps it would someday be possible for us to put together a show where you and Derek can talk about federal policy and what's going on at the national level 
where he can join a, on uh, on your show and talk about what's going on in the advocacy universe. But that, yeah, that spectrum I, is I, really what I love about the network. I'm really looking forward to checking out their podcasts. I know that they are both subject matter experts and are going to have a lot of really great and interesting insights to share. And I would love to connect with them, possibly have them on our show or be on their show, but um, we can discuss that down the road. Um, And in the meantime, if people are interested in learning more about the Healthy Oceans Coalition, um, they can visit healthyoceanscoalition.org. And on that website, they can find my contact information because we are always looking to grow and bring new people into the fold. Um, so if you're interested in what I just described, please reach out to me. Well, let's, um, let's talk a little bit about some of the major uh, coastal advocacy issues around the United States and up in the Northeast region. Uh, we never did find out, Jenna, what neighborhood in Boston you're from, so you're going to have to tell us, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I live in Somerville. Um, so, you know, depending on who you talk to, I technically don't live in Boston, um, but that Somerville, Cambridge area, I think, are vital to the um, the culture here and contribute many of the best restaurants and best dressed people. So, <laughs> well, and, and I, I think we would be remiss if we didn't uh, congratulate you and everybody else in Boston on the uh, the, the Red Sox winning the uh, the American League East pen. I believe they won it. Yes, what yesterday, yes, last night. Yep. Yeah, we are very proud of our sports teams up here, as I'm sure you guys are very well aware of, even if it's uh, to an annoying level for everybody else. <laughs> well, I, I, I've been reading with some interest about the, uh, the the shenanigans, or should I say the internal politics of the Patriots and the future of Tom Brady, but we'll skip that topic. <laughs> <laughs> That's That could be a whole other That's podcast. That's a whole show. It's uh, <laughs> a different kind of policy issue, but... Yeah. Um, so I think what I wanted to do was was really take a moment to give people a flavor about the kind of discussions that you're going to have on the Sea Change podcast, and uh, we had talked about it a couple of them, and one of them is is to introduce people to the federal ocean policy and and the changes that are starting to be discussed in federal ocean policy, and can you tell us about Tell our audience what the Federal Ocean Policy is, how it came about, and what's going on, if you, if you, if you can. Yeah, so I can also give a little background about the show um, before we dive yeah. into that. Or, yeah, please oh, do. Oh. Yeah, let's talk, about, let's talk about the show. Yes, that's a bit, you're, you're right. Um, tell, us okay. about this, tell us about the uh, Sea Change podcast. Tell us about the show you want to do. Yeah, so um, the drive for the show is really to demonstrate all the countless ways that people advocate and care for the coasts and the ocean. Um, And in saying that, you don't have to work for a nonprofit or be doing corporate social responsibility to advocate for our planet. Um, And even though working for a nonprofit or doing corporate social responsibility is those are both super important roles, and I plan to speak to people that are engaged in those activities in addition to many others. Um, I think it's really important to humanize what advocacy means and put faces and stories behind all the incredible work that's being done out there. So, um, you know, sometimes I think a lot of the news cycle can be oversaturated with, uh, with negative stories, and I really want to shine a light and give credit to those people that are out there um, that are being kind to each other and being kind to the planet. And um, this could be by, you know, like picking up trash along your beach or running a giant company that's focused on blue technology. Um, I think all of those stories deserve to be told and um, they're all interesting. So um, I think the ultimate goal is, you know, to, to show people what's going on out there and the different ways that advocacy can exist in this space, but also hopefully inspire people to hear what somebody else is doing maybe in their region or similar to a vision that they have um, and get the, them out there um, to take action and, and clean up our coastline and protect it. It's really great. And I can tell you, I, I, I really appreciate the role that 
the coastal advocacy community plays. In, in a prior life, I was the co-director of the Texas Coastal Management Program. And when we were building the policy framework for the Texas Coastal Program, the voice of the coastal advocates was a really important component in how we developed policy along the shoreline. Of course, we heard from and needed to hear from the shipping and port interest and the real estate interest along the shore and the commercial and recreational fishing community. Uh, we needed to hear from all of those people, but the voice of the public it plays a critical role uh, in the development of coastal policy and how we behave toward the shoreline, doesn't it? I mean, has that been your experience? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that what's been really great to see is, um, you know, all of those people you mentioned and groups that you mentioned speaking to, um, you know, we try to get representation from such a diverse group of people that you could be working as a recreational fisherman, but also serve as an ocean advocate. Um, and those are, you know, those are the exactly the kind of people that we love to work with. Um, because when we go in and speak on certain issues that we care about and policies that we care about, it's always so impactful to have stories about how those policies, which can seem kind of wonky on paper, um, how they transform and impact people on the ground and in real life. Right. Um, so if you can bring in, you know, a fisherman that has, is the, out there, like front lines, seeing the change in fish stocks or plastics in the ocean, um, and then you know somebody else that might work for a nonprofit or an education center, and have them share their stories. Those are the things that resonate with our decision makers. So when it comes time for them to you know develop a policy, they're going to remember that person that has been you know relying on catching these certain fish for their family to eat but now they don't have them and why is that um and all of that will be in their minds when they're making decisions so right. i think that the coastal advocate plays this massive role in decision making and policy making um because you know at the end of the day congress and our federal agency leads they all work for us and so it's our responsibility to go in and realize our own power and make sure that our voices are being heard. Because um, if you're silent, then they're not, you know, it's, it's hard for our decision makers to know what matters Indeed. to you and how their decisions are going to affect you. Um, so I definitely... I, I think I, in my experience is the policies are better when you have the full spectrum of voices at the table uh, both on the economic interest side, but on the uh, the care and conservation of the coast, that voice that you that you spoke about as your inspiration. Um, but you said something that I think is really important, and I bet you ten bucks most of our listeners that work in the coastal profession know this intuitively, if not consciously. But it's the idea that the environmental ethic and the conservation ethic and caring about the coast isn't the exclusive purview of coastal advocates. I, I've worked with developers who have a great sensitivity to the environment and want to do things the right way. I've worked with uh, builders and I've worked with uh, uh, shipping folks who really care about the coast and bringing out that ethic that we, I think we all depend on this coastal space for so many things that being able to connect the dots together and bringing that sense of care and conservation to the table isn't simply an us versus them discussion. It's across all kinds of professions. And that's what I hope to convey with the podcast is show all of the different ways that people can, uh, you know, take responsibility for caring for the coast and our waterways um, and hopefully inspire folks and weave that narrative thread through you know, conservation isn't just a nonprofit conservation group thing. Right. And we aren't the only ones that can be doing it and should be doing it. We all should be doing it. And, you know, here is how. Great. So that's that's my ultimate goal with the Sea Change podcast. Great. I love it. And, I, you know, I can't imagine that those all those lobstermen up in Maine, I think they care a whole lot about water quality and water temperature and fish stocks and the health of the environment because that's their life and their livelihood. 
Absolutely. And you see that in how passionate they are in everything that they do is that is their life and their livelihood. Um, and I know a, a few lobstermen personally that are doing wonderful work for conservation and uh, some other watermen, some oyster growers and people that are doing aquaculture. Um, so there are many different ways that you can lessen your impact on the planet while still pursuing the career of your dreams and, you know, of your heritage and of your choice. Yeah. Um, well, let's, let's take a dip into some of the policies that might be discussed and we're not going to go into a ton of detail here, but I do think that, that it's important for folks to know the level of the discussion that you hope to have on the sea change podcast. And, and you've just in, in, working to get this show together, I've learned some things I didn't know. And I'll tell you, you've educated me about federal ocean policy. And uh, tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Um, so the national ocean policy was the founding block of the Healthy Oceans Coalition um, uh, nearly eight years ago. And so the Healthy Oceans Coalition originally started to support the full implementation of the national ocean policy which was an executive order put in place by President Obama, but was the result of nearly, um, actually over a decade of bipartisan research and bipartisan um, commissions that, you know, leadership from all the different federal agencies and top scientists sat on those. And um, they all came together to recommend some sort of national ocean policy being imperative to how our country should run and manage our oceans because we recognize and they recognize that the oceans as vast as they may be and as vast as they may seem are very busy places. Um, we touched on this a little bit earlier in the show. We put a lot of pressure on our coastlines and our ocean um, and so it was developed, the National Ocean Policy was developed in thinking about how are we going to sustainably manage our waterways into the future so that they can continue being as productive as we um, would like them to be and as we rely on them to be. Mm, yeah. um, so what the National Ocean Policy said, just a brief overview of it, is um, it was asking the federal agencies, any federal agency that has a purview over our ocean, coast, and Great Lakes um, to break out of their silos and find efficiencies in their work. And this mostly happened through increased transparency, communication, and data sharing. Um, so work wasn't being duplicated. Everybody was making the most informed decisions that they possibly could because we were all sharing our data um, and working off of the same information so we could better understand why, um, why people were making the decisions that they were making. Hmm. And um, through this directive also came um, the, so if a region, the national ocean policy broke the country up into nine different regions based off of um, their unique geography and um, planning needs. And if a region stood up and said, hey, we would like to pull together a regional planning body, which includes um, representatives from federal agencies, state agencies, and tribal governments, and we're all going to get together, have open dialogues that are publicly accessible, the public and stakeholders and coastal communities, everybody's invited to join in on these discussions with the end goal that we're going to develop a ocean plan for our right. region that let me, outlines. Let me, let me, let me interrupt you there because I think that concept is, is central both to the national ocean policy program. It's also central to the understanding that we're trying to work with on at Coastal News today. And it has to do with the idea that the, the oceans and the coast are so intricately used by so many different people for so many different purposes that when they, these regional ocean plans that you're talking about is an attempt to sort of bring the stakeholders and the interest together to talk about how to manage it for the best interest of the whole. 
and those regional election plans, is that process still going to go forward? And have, how, what's the status of the regional ocean planning in the U.S. these days? Yeah, so um, the Northeast and the Mid-Atlantic were actually able to get completed plans. There's the Northeast Ocean Plan and then the Mid-Atlantic Ocean Action Plan. Um, and then the Pacific Islands and the West Coast are, have the ball rolling with that process. Um, but there actually was a giant wrench thrown into the mix. Um, on June 19th, President Trump um, repealed the National Ocean Policy, um, which we all had a bit of, good bit of stress thinking about that prior to the repeal and replace because um, we understood that it was put in place by an executive order. Um, so he has the right to do that. Of course. Um, so, yep. And so he repealed and replaced the national ocean policy with his own executive order, which if anyone is interested in looking it up and reading more about it, it's the executive order 13840 regarding the ocean policy to advocate the economic security and environmental interests of the United States. Huh. Um, so that was a mouthful, but what that really means is it's a real bummer because the national ocean policy, um, which actually would have turned eight this year, um, as I mentioned, really was decades of, of bipartisan, really good bipartisan work. Um, even though it was part of Obama's legacy. Mm. Um, and so the uh, repeal is a big deal because the U.S. economy and healthy environment, the healthy ocean environment, are really inextricably linked to the federal government um, and its ability to collaborate across agencies and manage it pro uh, proactively. Right. Um, it needs, you know, the federal government is needing to openly communicate with each other and share data so that we can identify existing and potential conflicts and develop solutions okay. um, for, you know, more efficient permitting and use and um, tools for healthy, productive marine environment. Well, um, and what be, we're, oh, yeah, well, go it, ahead. I was just well, going to touch on really quick what the new one. Well, I think, I think what, uh, What's clear is that the national ocean policy is going through this transformation, and uh, is that something your listeners uh, could expect to hear? Uh, tracking how that how that process evolves now that uh, the executive order has been repealed, and that there is a new ocean policy executive order. Is that I would assume. That would be an interesting topic on the Sea Change podcast. Absolutely. And I am, you now have me thinking that that could be a great crossover episode between, um, you know, your policy hosts and myself um, to have a discussion about what that may mean into the future um, and, you know, what we might see moving forward with it. Um, Love the idea. Yeah, <laughs> be a yeah. Good, we're just I think it, because these 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 federal initiatives, the federal government role in the, on the American shoreline is massive uh, mm -hmm. in so many ways, and um, I think it's a complicated universe. I see a lot of people, and, and I myself have a very hard time sometimes tracking what the Corps of Engineers is doing and its spending priorities, and how the process works. And I think the the, uh, the federal policy podcast that we have, uh, Howard and, and Derek's show and your show on, on advocacy could really help the public understand a little bit better what goes on uh, in federal coastal policy. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's pretty, that should, if it's not already central to their podcast, which I assume that it is, that it, it should be a central aspect of um, what we are what our goal is when we're creating these episodes is to help develop a deeper understanding of the policy world and advocacy. And, you know, with all the other podcasts that are encompassed within the network, um, you know, if nothing else, helping people develop a deeper understanding of all of these issues and how complex and intertwined it all is, I yeah. think would be a win. Absolutely right. And yeah, 
The other, the, let's turn our attention to a sec, second major topic on the American shoreline. And in, in, to set it up a little bit, in Coastal News Today, we're going to be covering coastal energy uh, news, but we're also going to grow into a podcast on coastal energy. It can, and that subject area is complicated. It includes offshore oil and gas development, of course, but also some of the emerging uh, wind and renewable power projects that are being explored around the United States. Uh, I understand that oil and gas uh, development is a hot topic up in the northeast part of the American shoreline. It is. Um, is it actually possible for me to, to give one last bit of an update on the National Ocean Policy and yes. Regional Ocean Planning side yes, of things? Yes, please do. Sorry. Okay, do. so that's okay. No, no need to apologize. Um, so what we're seeing now with the new executive order is it's a shift from conservation and inclusion and transparency to just a more bureaucratic and directive of, uh, focused on promoting resource extraction, and um, with the repeal of the Obama-era national ocean policy, it completely dismantled any existing regional planning bodies. So there's no longer that platform for our federal agencies, state agencies, and tribal governments to sit at the table as equals and make decisions about how they're going to move forward either with developing an ocean plan or implement the ocean plans that already exist. But with that said... Some of these regions have um, existing uh, regional state partnerships um, that potentially will be stepping up and taking a lead role. Hmm. So we are seeing a lot of commitment to moving these plans forward and developing these plans still, but it's now um, just getting over this hurdle and seeing which groups and organizations and state or tribal governments are going to step up and lead the way on this. Um, And then mentioning those regional partnerships that potentially will lead the way. I was just having a conversation a a few weeks ago with some of our partners out in the Pacific islands and they are feeling a good deal of frustration out there because, um, there was an existing partnership, but it's currently on hold because of um, lack of funding. So somebody could come back in and start that partnership back up and continue the great work that they're doing out there because we are expecting to see a plan coming out of um, Guam, I believe, or American Samoa in December. Um, But in terms of moving that work forward from there, it's going to be challenging um, until somebody steps up and and provides funding to continue that work. So there was a giant hurdle placed in the way of some really good work through this repeal and replace. So it sounds like the Healthy Coalition, uh, Healthy Oceans Coalition covers a lot of ground if you're if you're tracking and advancing policy out in the Pacific Island community, that's a, that's that's kind of covers most of the world. Yeah. So the the, the beautiful thing about our coalition and um, you know the reach that I hope to have with the podcast as well is that we bring in people from all over the country. We even have people in the inland states, um, all working together to discuss the challenges that they face in their work. Um, it's a great forum for people to network and get to know each other and learn how other places may have overcome those challenges. Um, so we like to connect people from all over the country in the ocean community um, with the goal of strengthening conservation and um, advancing policy that is good for our ocean coasts and Great Lakes. Sounds fabulous, Jenna. I can't wait to track that and follow you along on on the uh, sea change podcast and let's take one more let's take a stroll through one more major issue on the american shoreline that has drawn the attention of coastal advocates but also um, strong interest both national and economic around the country Uh, the country has been moving toward energy independence i think the united states is the largest oil and gas producer in the world right now Um, LNG um, exports are now allowed in common in the United States, I believe, is a net exporter of LNG products. There's a lot going on um, in the energy universe, and and we look forward to covering that industry and uh, having our podcast host on that industry track it for us. But 
from an advocacy standpoint, uh, the expansion of offshore oil and gas development and the potential expansion of offshore renewable energy production, uh, primarily wind power, uh, is not a quiet topic area, as I understand it. <laughs> no, it is not. Um, and just to touch on wind first, because that is a hot topic, um, especially in the Northeast right now, we're seeing... Um, well, first, we have the first ever offshore wind farm in the United States located off of Block Island in Rhode Island. Um, but now we're starting to see the states around Rhode Island um, jumping in and looking to develop offshore wind of their own with specifically um, Massachusetts, New York, and New Jersey. Yeah. Um, seem like they're all in this three-way race to outdo each other with who can produce um, the most offshore wind power. And from the American Literal Society standpoint, we are um, very supportive of pushing renewable energy forward. Um, and with that said, at the same time, it seems like a lot of this is happening at a very rapid pace. Um, and we want to make sure that we're being smart about the development of new offshore wind turbines off of our coast and um, taking the time to really consider um, the placement of where these turbines go, the wildlife that lives there, the birds that migrate through there. Um, but as long as we're being well-informed using the best data that we have available to us, including robust stakeholder engagement in this process, um, we are very supportive of making a strong push toward renewable energy. Fantastic. Uh, you know, I think if you look at the wind, offshore wind industry around the world, I think the, the European development offshore wind, this is certainly off of England and in the North Sea, is huge. Um, the investments are gigantic. Um, it is a pretty interesting, uh, a pretty powerful uh sector of the energy economy and growing around the world. And I do think it's going to present some interesting siting and policy issues for communities all along the American shoreline. Uh, I wanted to mention on the oil and gas front, the state of California uh, uh, passed legislation and, and, uh, and, and the governor signed it that prohibits now uh, the development of the infrastructure necessary to support offshore oil and gas off the California coast. This is a state law that uh, that applies to state coastal waters, but I know that the experience of the Deepwater Horizon spill probably uh, does not help uh, states that are unfamiliar with oil and gas development off the coast, like we are here in Texas or in Louisiana or Alabama or Mississippi, states that have a long history of oil and gas Infrastructure. The folks in California, I think, in other parts of the United States, are really a little skeptical, at least, um, about the potential for oil and gas development off the shoreline and, and what it does to uh, both the communities offshore and the potential environmental risks involved. It's going to be a very interesting issue to track on on the Sea Change podcast. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that um, states like California with what they just passed and some other states that are potentially, um, you know, looking to pass similar bills um, are doing that in a way to help really um, safeguard their coasts because understanding that state waters are go out from zero to three miles Right. And most, you know, offshore oil rigs are going to be farther out than that. But it's a way for them to play defense because in order for them to bring oil ashore, they're making it really difficult for um, any of that, anything that's relating to the offshore oil and gas development and exploration can't enter that zone. Um, so that is actually a pretty ingenious way, I think, from states to, even though they have no jurisdiction over their federal waters, to safeguard what happens off of their coast in terms of oil and gas entering, um, you know, what they can control. Indeed. And, and there's a flip side to the discussion. I was in North Carolina at the NC Byways meeting earlier this year. It's the coastal organization for the state of North Carolina. 
And there was a presentation about revenue sharing, federal revenue sharing from offshore oil and gas. Um, in Texas and on the Gulf Coast, uh, that federal revenue sharing program under the what's called GOMESA, the Gulf of Mexico Energy Security Act. We're in what is now called phase two revenue sharing, uh, which means that the state of Texas is going to receive up to $100 million per year and every coastal county along the shoreline of the Texas coast has already started to receive allotments that total more than $10 million. Um, that revenue sharing program applies in Louisiana, it applies in Mississippi, it applies in Alabama. Uh, the, the Land and Water Conservation Fund, which is an important revenue source for environmental protection all around the United States, gets about $200 million annually right now out of this federal offshore oil and gas revenue sharing puzzle. So as the oil and gas discussion on the American shoreline advances, there are the, of course, there's the industry and economic and national security interests that come into play. Uh, the GOMESA program brings into play significant financial resources that states will have to uh, sort through. And then the strong voice in the advocacy community about what the impacts of these kinds of industries are and these kind of activities are along the American shoreline. I think it's going to be an absolutely uh, fantastic discussion to follow, and uh, I'm not sure how it's going to come out. I yeah, and I, I love that you guys are bringing in all of these different perspectives because I think it's super important for everybody to be hearing all of these different viewpoints from people in order to form the most well-informed decision that you know they can about their views on um, developing offshore oil and gas and um, you know making a push toward renewables but you you also made me wonder if because I know that there are those programs that are you know pumping money into the regions that are developing offshore oil and gas that yeah. if we made a big push for renewables would it be possible to do something similar just using renewable energy instead Absolutely. of oil? You know, I, I can't see why not. I mean, uh, in a broader context, there isn't any differentiation between the two. And I think a lot of the, uh, a lot of the, what I've seen in the, in the wind energy discussion is a desire to have these uh, towers be located over the horizon so that they're not visible from the mainland shore. If that puts them in, them in federal waters, there, there will be, I would assume, I, I'm quite sure of it, that there is a federal royalty payment that the uh, wind producers, the wind energy producers, will pay to the federal treasury. And uh, the theory in the oil and gas universe under GOMESA is that these facilities offshore that are in federal waters have direct impacts on coastal communities along the shoreline. The communities have to provide infrastructure for the ships and all of the tenders and all of the equipment that goes with the maintenance of these energy facilities. And the revenue sharing programs are premised on the notion that the states suffer some impact, positive economic impact to be sure, but also complex and potentially negative consequences in their community levels. And these federal revenue sharing programs are a way to balance that out. I, I'm a big fan of, of GOMESA and uh, these revenue sharing programs uh, for coastal communities. I think um, if, you're, if the federal government opens up offshore oil and gas development as uh, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management has proposed this year, um, and you would hope to see that revenue sharing program expand with it and be applied in the uh, sorry, renewable energy context as well. Yeah, it's definitely a fascinating world to navigate. And I'm definitely looking forward to your energy podcast that is going to be included in the network um, to learn more about it because there's so much to know and there's so much that seems like it's developing rapidly. Um, I know that when I was out uh, touring Block Island Wind Farm, I learned that wind technician is the fastest growing career in the country, which is like a total fun fact that I did not know. I didn't know that. But I can also give a little bit of background for the listener on on the the Boehm, uh 
proposal for their offshore leasing plan. Please do. Okay. Um, So earlier this year, the Department of the Interior, which is the part, it's like the, if you think of it as like the parent of BOEM, like it's the umbrella organization that BOEM is encompassed within, um, decided to go back and release a proposal that I think is unnecessary and many people that I work with is thinks is unnecessary um, for the National Outer Continental Shelf Oil and Gas Leasing Program. Um, and the reason why I feel this way is because there was already one in place. These leases run for five years at a time and the last one um, was certified from 2017 through 2022. Um, but Ryan Zinke, the Secretary of the Interior, um, decided to order the um, BOEM or the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management to recreate the plan. Um, so take up time and federal tax dollars to recreate a plan that already existed. Um, so the plan, the new one that they're proposing is um, putting on the table 90% of U.S. waters. Um, they're proposing to lease those, put those up for lease for offshore oil and gas exploration and drilling. This includes 47 potential lease sales um, in 25 of the 26 um, planning areas. So if you were there, if you go online to Bones website, they have um, a map that you can pull up that will show where their leasing areas are. Um, And these sales include 19 off the coast of Alaska, 7 in the Pacific region, 12 in the Gulf of Mexico, and 9 in the Atlantic Ocean. Um, And this is the largest number of lease sales ever proposed for a national outer continental shelf oil and gas leasing program. Um, This program would allow oil companies to drill in new areas of the Arctic Ocean, along the Gulf Coast, and for the first time in more than 30 years, the Pacific and Atlantic coasts, which are protected for good reason based off of um, robust biodiversity, economic benefits of fisheries and clean coastlines. Um, And then the way that currents would distribute oil if we ever had another, another catastrophic event like the Deepwater Horizon oil spill or the Exxon Valdez. Um, And I mean, in my opinion, to be honest, it doesn't even take a spill of that size to cause significant harm. Um, We definitely have shown that where we drill, we're going to spill in small leaks and spills here or there add up to damaging impacts on wildlife um, and human and ocean health. Wow. You know, those kinds of considerations, Jenna, I think are the, really what's so important about having a show dedicated to coastal advocacy. Uh, you know, uh, in my experience along the shoreline, we're all, uh, we, we all tend to silo and, and get into our professions. And I think it's important to cross the silos as much as we can. And folks in the oil and gas industry and the real estate industry, the more they understand the perspective of the coastal conservation and coastal care community, the better I think decisions can be made. And in in every case that I've seen success along the shoreline, there has to be a reconciliation of interests that that represent and value the the entire coastal uh, spectrum. In other words, we can't simply use the coast as an oil and gas production area to the complete disregard of ecosystems and environmental health. When we do that, we destroy entire communities of interest. And, you know, a, a good example of that recently, of course, and we've talked about it on the, on, on the American Shoreline podcast shows a couple back, but the, the, the red tide and algae blooms that have been occurring in Florida, which some believe, and I think is accurate, accurate, believe that that is attributable in part to runoff from agricultural practices that uh, spur the, the blooms of these, these critters and these plants, these, al- 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 these micro uh, algaes. And the effect of that has been a devastating impact on the tourism industry and that part of the Florida coastal economy. And that's what I'm talking about and why it is so important that we pay attention to the advocates because what 
the advocate community is doing along the American shoreline is arguing for the integrity of the natural system. And that natural system is important in its own philosophical right, kind of as a moral issue, but it is also massively important economically, and it can't be disregarded. Absolutely. And um, something that I found really heartening throughout this whole process um, with the release of this proposed plan is just how strongly communities banded together to make their voices heard um, in opposition of this proposal and to speak out on behalf of their coastal communities and what they envision um, for the future of energy development off of their coasts. Um, our partners at Oceana have been tracking um, engagement on this issue, and um, the last that I checked, that they they found that more than 300 municipalities um, over across the country, and more than uh, 1,900 elected official officials um, from a local, state, and federal level have all come out to formally oppose offshore drilling off of their coast. Um, and this includes seismic air gun blasting, um, and 220 of those are located along the Atlantic and Gulf coasts. Um, so we just hope that along this process of developing this plan, those voices are being heard and considered. Um, we're expected to see a revised plan by the end of the year or early next year. And at that time, there will be another public comment period. So... Um, again, we're just hoping that our voices were heard and reflected in the plan, but given what we've seen from this administration's heavy interest in investing in oil and gas, we're, um, we're gearing up for another battle, even though, you know, it's sort of one of those prepare for the worst and hope for the best situation. So we'll just see what they propose in the, um, revised plan. Well, I, you know, we're all Americans, and the one thing I know about Americans is we speak our minds and uh, <laughs> from all perspectives, and that's one of the great things about the, about the country, uh, regardless of whether it's coast, a coastal topic or not. But uh, the coastal advocate community is a critical, critical voice in what happens on the American shoreline, and uh, I just can't thank you enough for agreeing to host this podcast and to cover this subject for all the listeners at ASPN, it's going to be super. Um, we have, uh, I think, I think we've exhausted the topic in the introduction. Um, Jen, I really, really uh, can't tell you enough how much we appreciate the show you're bringing to us. Um, we want to tell everybody on the ASPN audience that uh, we'll be introducing our podcast host to you, Tyler and I will, on the American Shoreline podcast over the next uh, month or so. And Jenna, we're looking forward to your kickoff show. And uh, before we sign off, I want to thank Max Miller. This is the first podcast we've done with Skype and on a phone interview. And I think it's a pretty good setup. And Max, I want to thank you for your work as our sound engineer and Tyler uh, co-host. Do you have any closing thoughts? Well, thanks, Jenna. Uh, again, I'm. we could not be more excited for this show. Um, the advocate community is... You know, I'm just re retracing what we they just said. I, I was listening this entire time and just found it fascinating. But what we know is that the advocacy community uh, really is the glue that and backbone. It's the backbone of uh, the environmental side of, of valuing our shoreline. So it's just incredibly important. And uh, we look forward to giving that community a, a wide birth and, and an opportunity to uh, educate us all on what they're working on on ASPN. Uh, and finally, uh, before I sign off, I want to wish everyone in California a uh, happy surfing day. Uh, belated, of course, but very first one this year, and I think that's great. Uh, surfing day, September 20th in California. Yeah, that's what I've heard, Tyler, is the state of California passed a law declaring September 20th National Surfing Day in the state. Doesn't it declare surfing the, the sport of California? What it is. is it what, it what is. is. Uh, California's official sport is surfing now. <laughs> the coast again, you know, I think the character of California is, I think in the minds of a lot of the public is, is always 
kind of comes, the coast comes to mind first, and uh, we're looking forward to covering what's happening out in California. But so for all the listeners out there, um, ASPN, the American Shoreline Podcast Network, is available wherever you get your podcasts. Send it to your friends. Tell them to sign up. And go to CoastalNewsToday.com. You can sign up for the daily newsletter Blast, uh, News Blast, which will be starting in October. Um, we have a splash page up right now, but we're working our rear ends off to get our website up and running. And we just want to thank everybody for listening in today and joining us on Coastal News Today and the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody.